remember a song when I was much younger about I want to be like a tree that's planted with its roots in the earth, reaching out for refreshment, sun and spring, the water, bring new birth. And uh, Psalm 1 has stuck with me in that way for a while. Psalm 1 introduces the psalm. Psalm 1 is, a, is a different than many of the psalms. Psalm 1 is about wisdom. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It tells us something important about life, something that applies to all of life one way or another, something about what life is supposed to be. What is life supposed to be? That's the question, right? What is life supposed to be? Is life supposed to be, from God's perspective, or our thoughts about God, is, 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 is life supposed to be good or bad? Is it supposed to be blessed or condemned and judged? Is life supposed to be meaningful or futile? Fruitful or destructive? Is your life going to be prospering and purposeful? Is it going to be empty and meaningless? You see, it could be either of those. It could be fruitful. It could be futile. It could be purposeful. It could be meaningless. Is your life going to be like sweet, ripening fruit? And there was sweet, ripened fruit in the cafe this morning. Some of you probably still went for the cookies. But the fruit was there. The fruit was ready to be had. Is, is our life going to be tired and worn out, dried up, weak and withering like a leaf in a harsh drought? Will your life be like a growing wheat ready for harvest that feeds and sustains others or will it be like the chaff that is blown away, that doesn't last, that doesn't remain, but it's light and fluffy and it just, the wind carries it away and we don't care because it didn't add anything like the grains of wheat do. Psalm 1 is an invitation. It's an invitation as well as a description, an invitation to a spiritually vibrant and peaceful and fruitful life, a life that is lived in relationship with God. Relationship with and dependence upon. It's a, it's a, it's a psalm of imagery, a compelling image that invites us in. It invites us to the difference between a life flourishing or a life fading, to walk in the world's ways or to delight in the love of God. That's the, that, that's the difference. That's the options that are put before us in Psalm 1. Is my life going to be rooted? Is my life going to be grounded? I'm going to work through the psalm. It's only six verses. It's a short psalm. One of the nice things about psalms as well is, is for devotional reading, we can, we can kind of soak our hearts into this. You can kind of puzzle with the metaphors and the images and the pictures as you go through, and then you can think on it. You can, you can first sort of devote yourself to it, and then you can think and you can meditate, and the psalm's going to tell us to do that. And say, well, what does this mean? So first I want to work through it. And after we've worked through the psalm, I'm going to invite us to, to um, do two things. I'm going to invite us to step back, and I'm going to invite us to draw near. Now those things don't seem to relate together. How do you step back and draw near at the same time? But I hope step back, draw near will be clear. Ooh, see what I did there? <laughs> I hope that step back and draw near will be clear as we work through this Psalm 1. 
Let's begin Psalm 1, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, and I invite you to open it up, have it in front of you as we begin this morning. In Psalm 1, on page 448, if you're using the pew Bible. In verse 1, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed, fortunate, happy, a privileged recipient of God's favor. This is an invitation. This kind of man, and it's not just for men. Blessed is the one, maybe is another way to consider that. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's an interesting movement here. The, the, the words that are used on three different levels seem to move from one, one step to another, going further in, or maybe you could say further away. But, but, but the blessed man, what is it that characterizes the blessed one? What is it that characterizes the fruitful life? The fruitful life is first expressed, it's not this. You won't find it there. Instead, it's, it's over here. This is where to go. This is where that stream is. This is where the green leaf will flourish. This is where fruit is going to be born in and out of life. Blessed is the one who walks not, who does not stand, who does not sit. So walks and stands and sits. There's, there's a motion that moves to a settling, walking, standing, sitting, or dwelling, remaining, abiding. There's a transition there. There's, there's movement from the, well, the word in verse 1 is wicked, but actually I'd, I'd like you to think about that in the terms of ungodly. For instance, the Hebrews talked about the Babylonians and the Egyptians as the wicked. And that's not to say that all Babylonians were bad and evil and wicked. Not all Egyptians were bad and evil and wicked. A lot of them were just workaday people, carrying on with their lives as best as they could, but without hope and without God in the world. That's the way Ephesians chapter 2 puts it. The wicked also is translated the ungodly. By ungodly, again, I don't mean evil and immoral people. I mean people who live without reference to God. This is the agnostic. This is the atheist. Or maybe it's just the practical atheist, the one who says they believe in God but lives without any reference to God in the day-to-day decisions that they make. Okay? The, by ungodly, I simply mean those who live life on practical human terms without any reference at all to heaven's perspective. We figure this out as best we can on our own with what makes sense to us. Okay? That's the ungodly. Now, we move from ungodly to sinner. The sinner is a little further than that. The sin sin refers to missing a mark, and parallel to that is the word transgression, which means to have a line, to have a boundary, and to transgress, to go across it. So we sin by things that we do and by things that we don't do. Remember the old Lutheran line. We have sinned against you in what we have done and what we have left undone. We, we don't measure up to God's standards. And when God has put a standard, don't cross this, don't do that, we cross the line and we do that, we transgress. So the ungodly are without reference to God. The sinners in this progression, the sinners are the ones who are aware of God and know something of accountability to him and yet do their own thing, insist on their own way. I did it my way. We go from the ungodly to the sinners to the scoffers. 
The scoffers are more vocal in their disobedience to God, in their dishonoring from God. We've gone from ignoring to disobeying to now dishonoring. The scoffer would shake his fist at God in heaven and say, I dare you to do something about it. I'm going to go my way. I don't care what God has to say. And you people who follow him are going to believe him. You're a bunch of idiots. I'm going to do it my way. I remember um, John Woods in his message here just at the first of the year uh, while we were in Zimbabwe. But I listened in online, and he talked about how the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. In fact, the Greek word says that the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus, is moronic to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe it. You know what that means? Those who don't believe in Jesus think you're a bunch of morons. That's kind of harsh. That's the scoffer. So we move from ignoring God to willfully disobeying God to dishonoring God and an outright rebellious rejection. Okay, there's a transit. That's the progression that we see. Ungodly to sinners to scoffers, walking to um, standing to sitting. Also, who, let me see, I think I put these together. The, um, the counsel or advice in the way, in the manner of living, to in the seat of settling down, a place to dwell, a place where I now create an identity. Okay, blessed is the man, the blessed, fortunate, happy, privileged recipient of God's favor is the one who doesn't order their life, doesn't walk by, doesn't listen in on the advice of the ungodly. I'm not walking according to the ways or the political design or the strategy of how to get ahead among people or circumstances those who are ungodly or those who are living without reference to God. Common sense is simply that, common. Conventional wisdom, the normal conventions of this world or this society are not the wisdom of God. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. The wisdom of God is foolishness. That's because not God's upside down, but the world is upside down. And so the blessed life, the fruitful life, what God has intended for us comes not by living according to conventional wisdom, but living a different way, living from God's direction, from God's wisdom. From God's wisdom does not um, stand, doesn't hang out with the the way of the sinner, doesn't uh, sit in the seat of the scoffers. By not following the perspective, advice, the practices the uh, standing, the transgressions, or the presence of sitting among the scoffers, ignoring, disobeying, scorning, not walking in everyday ways the way that anybody else would advise or choose, not living by common sense because I'm not common. You're unique. You're special. You're called. You've been set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live by heaven's wisdom, not following the ways of those who live as if God is not, or at least not relevant because he is. Following the ways of God, uh, uh, following the ways rather of those without God involves who, who do I hang, around, hang, hang out with? It's not what voices do I listen to, what perspectives do I follow, what advice seems to matter the most, but who do I hang out with? They're standing in the way of sinners. Who do I hang out with? Who am I being thus influenced by? Who am I going along with and doing the things that they're doing? I remember this in high school for myself. 
In high school, I, hang out, I hung out with certain people because I wanted to belong somewhere. And so I hang, hung out with some folks and I did some things that they did. I wanted to be part of the group and I did things the group did because I wanted to belong. I'm, I'm hunting for identity. I'm hunting for some way that I connect, that I matter, that I mean something to somebody. And I find that by doing the things that they're doing. See, people are herd animals. It's one of the reasons God calls us sheep. But we are not sheep of any old pasture. We are the sheep of his pasture, the psalmist says. We're meant to flock together around him. That's where our safety is. That's where our fruitfulness is. He he leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The images come together. We will be herd animals, so if, 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 if we are, if that's how we're made, we're made as social created beings. That's why Facebook is such a, good, a, a big thing, right? That's why so many people are there, is because we are meant to, and so that's one more way that we connect and flock together. Who will I flock together with? You heard me talk before about are you connected in some way with other growing believers? Do you have a place where you can connect and and others know you and you know others and they'll pray for you? And if you're struggling with something, if something is, is, is pulling at you, if something draws you, if you want somebody else to walk along with you, do you have a place where you know others and others know you and you can go and have that connection? We need to be growing together with other growing believers. We run better in a race when we run together. In a cycling race, the, the, the cyclists, they all run together, right? And they take turns at the lead, just like a flock of geese in the sky. They take turns in the lead. Others draft behind, but they all go better when they go together. We spur one another on. Who we hang around with matters. Who we make connection with matters. If you don't intentionally choose who you're going to socialize with and who you're going to impact and be impacted by, it'll happen by default. Parents, this applies to the choices that you make in school, doesn't it? Do you homeschool? Do you send your kids to public school? Do you send your kids to to, um, a private school that you feel has an atmosphere that, that, and we think, the way we make that decision and making the right decision, do I homeschool, do I public school, do I private school, whatever, if I make the right decision there, I've got it right and things are going to be okay. Not at all. Parents have a responsibility to enga- be engaged with their kids and to be leading their kids from childhood into adulthood, no matter what kind of schooling setting they're doing that in, no matter what kind of context they put themselves in. And there's opportunities and challenges in any of those. But how will we walk with them through that? How will we walk together in paths of righteousness, in ways of fruitfulness? It's not, it's not so much a where, it's a how do I do it there. You know, God has not called us to come out of the world. Jesus says that when he's praying for his disciples. Lord, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. No. But I ask that in this world you keep them from the evil one. How do we do that for one another? How do I put myself with others that I myself am also kept guarded? Not standing in the way of sinners, not sitting in the seat of the scoffers. You know, that reminds me of Genesis 12. That word sitting in the seat of, it uses the words in Hebrew that the Greek version of the Old Testament translates for dwell or to abide, to live, to house down, to settle in. 
And I think of Genesis 12, where, where the herdsmen of, uh, of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham were in a conflict together. There's too many, there, there's too many, many animals, and there's, the herdsmen are conflicting about who's going to use what pastures. And so they decide we're going to need to split up. And Abraham tells Lot, Abraham's the patriarch. Abraham's the uncle. Lot is his nephew who came along. God called Abraham and Lot came along with him. But Abraham tells Lot, the younger, in a very patriarchal society, he says, you choose which way you want to go and I'll go the other way. We'll put some distance between our herds and our herdsmen and there's plenty of land here that God has given for the both of us. And so Lot looks around and Lot makes his choice. And young Lot, being an ambitious man, Lot says he looks toward the, toward the cities of the plain. And he sees that those plains and those valleys are very fruitful. There's good soil there. Things are growing there. There must be sources of water there. The fields are good. The, the, the livestock are going to grow fat there. And he says, you know, uncle, I'll take the... I'll take the fields of the plain. I'll go down toward the cities of the plain by Sodom and Gomorrah. And he went toward the cities. And he went to the city of Sodom. And then you find Lot a little further on in the book of Genesis. You find Lot has settled and you find him in the gates of the city. You find him sitting among the elders in the city gates. Among those in a city which is in rampant rebellion against God, and there Lot sits with him. And the New Testament tells us, Peter tells us, that righteous Lot was vexed. His soul, his soul was, 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 was being beat upon, was being wrung out by the unrighteousness around him. And yet he put himself there. How might it have been different if Lot, instead of looking around and surveying the situation and seeing the landscape and knowing where the best land was, what if Lot, instead of doing it according to conventional wisdom, where's the best land, where would I like to be? What if he said, where's the best land? My uncle should have the best land. See, because Abraham stayed off in the hills and he was that old, weird Abe guy out there in the hills that the people in the city probably laughed about And yet, when Sodom was taken, they knew where to go for help, didn't they? They knew one of the servants in the household went to Abraham and told him. And that's how Lot and the rest of the city were then rescued later on. So what if Lot had instead approached this from God's wisdom, which says, put others before yourself. Consider others more important than yourselves. Uncle, it looks like those fields down there are the most fertile anywhere around. What if you and your herds, herds took that and I went the other way? What if Lot had turned the whole thing upside down? I don't know how the story would have happened then because that's not the way it played out. Maybe Abraham would have approached the whole situation with Sodom differently than Lot had. I don't know. Maybe Abraham had learned something about trusting God by this time. I don't know. But it didn't go well for Lot, did he? Because he not only went towards, but settled in with and sat down in the seat of the scoffers. And it ruined his life, it ruined his family, it ruined his heritage. That's not the way to fruitfulness. So Psalm 1 warns us against. There's another picture that comes into my mind. And that's the picture 
of John 15, where Jesus, after the Lord's table, he's walking with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and as they're going, as they're following that path, there's vineyards along the route. And he uses those vineyards as they walk by them as an object lesson. He said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That word abide, that word dwell in. That you are a branch and I am the vine. And if you as a branch abide in the vine, the life of the vine will flow through the branch and it will bear all kinds of fruit and show itself to be a follower of Jesus. Rather than abiding, dwelling in Sodom, it's abiding and dwelling in the vine, the Lord Jesus. And that makes all the difference. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but what's the opposite of that? What does it look like? What does it look like in real life? I'm not tempted to go live in Sodom, and I'm not, I, I don't have a herd of sheep, and my herdsmen aren't fighting. What is any, I don't even have vineyards. What does any of this have to do with me? How do I, how do you, how can I then live that fruitful, blessed life? What does it look like? What does Psalm 1 tell me? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of God. In the law of the Lord, the covenant God, by the way, that's, that's, that's the name Jehovah there, not a generic Elohim for God in general, but this is the covenant God of Israel. Jehovah is his name, Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Doing that, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water. But let me dwell on verse two just for a moment. His delight is in the law of God. It'd be easy to go into a rant at this point. I thought maybe I would go into a rant about the situation, the society at large, and the world that we live in and how we need to guard ourselves from it. But I do not want us to be a church. I do not want us to be a family whereby we talk a lot about what others are doing out there. I want us to be talking about how do we, in here, draw near. That's, that's verse 2. That's the blessed man who lives in a fullness of life that God has called, and it's positively described. He doesn't do this. Instead, he does this. It's easy for us to, to draw the boundaries and say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Well, what am I supposed to do? Here it is, verse 2. Verse 2 is what I'm supposed to do so that I can live that fruitful life. Is it possible in this world? Is it possible with the weakness of our flesh and our humanity, is it possible to live that blessed life that's being described here? Can it be done? And obviously it can because Jesus did it. And you say, but Bob, what do you say? What's obvious there? I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus, Bob. You say it can be done because Jesus did it in his perfect humanity. Jesus did that. He showed us what a blessed man's life looks like. Psalm 1 is about Jesus. And yet, I'm not Jesus. You may have easily got that confused, but Julie knows better. I check with Julie. Bob is not Jesus. And yet, as a new covenant Christian, the spirit of the living God is dwelling in me. The spirit of the living God dwells in you, and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. By the power of the living God in us, the spirit dwelling within us, we can live out that new life that Jesus promises in John 15. How do I step into that? His delight is in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. You see, in the day of the psalmist, the Bible was much smaller than it is today. 
The prophets hadn't done much prophesying yet. The books of all the kings hadn't been written yet because they were still living in the era of the kings and were early in the process, actually. And so much of the Bible isn't written yet, but the books of Moses are there. The law of the Lord is there. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, that's what he's especially referring to. Oh, we like to live in the Gospels and the Epistles, I know, but he says here the law, but I think we can stretch it out from there. But why the law of God? Well, if you think about, actually, the, the five books of the Psalms are actually um, patterned after and follow something of the first five books of Moses. They're a worship manual to go along with the, with the Old Testament Jewish Bible, which was the books of Moses, the Torah. And if we think about, and his delight is in the law of God, how do those first five books portray God? That's what they're there for. The books of the law, the books of Moses, they reveal God. What do they say about him? Without going into a long exposition of all of those books, I, I understand there was a pastor a while ago, he did that. He had the longest sermon ever. And it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. And uh, he went all the way through the Bible as he expounded and kept going. And the poor church, they had to do shifts, you know, because they had to have a certain number of people listening at any given time. What do you think? Are you up for that? Shall we go? No. Let's do a very abbreviated version of the Torah then. My very abbreviated version of the Torah is that God has revealed himself as our creator, Genesis, our redeemer, Exodus, our savior to be worshipped, Leviticus, and as a guide who can be trusted even in the wilderness, the book of Numbers, who has made his covenant with us as his unique people, the book of Deuteronomy. Did Did you get that? Creator, redeemer, worship, Faith, he can be trusted. Covenant. Those are aspects of how God has revealed himself to his people. And that's what the psalmist is delighting in. The psalmist is delighting that God is his creator. The psalmist is delighting that God is his redeemer. That God is his sacrifice who can be worshipped, who can be trusted, who has put him in covenant relationship with the God who made everything. That's what the psalmist is delighting in. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That suggests to me small bites that can be chewed. We can get into, and there, there is, there is, there is um, great benefit in read-throughs. You can read through the Bible in a year. You can read through the Bible in a couple of months, and I strongly encourage it. But there's also benefit for reading smaller bites, bites that you can chew. To, to take time early in the day, because if you're going to meditate on it day and night, you've got to get something in that you're going to then chew on and meditate on through the day. You've got to start early, right? So early in the day, carve out some time. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of time, but are you carving out time that I'm going to start my day with reference to God rather than entering into it without making reference to God? Because that tempts me to proceed into the day just like the ungodly do. And there may be nothing terribly immoral about that. There is just nothing at all godly about that. Even the good things of the day might just be you trying to be your nicest rather than the fruit of the work of the living God within your soul bubbling out. But rather, I'm going to, that's right, I am blah, 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 blah. You hear the young one over here. 
I am going to delight in the law of the Lord. And I'm going to then meditate. I'm going to find something that I can then chew on through the day. I might read one psalm. I might read half a psalm. I might read three verses and something strikes me and I'll stop there. And we're going to chew on that. That's going to guide me in this day. I'm just going to, I'm just going to think about that in the day. God, what do you have for me here? What do you show me about yourself? That's what this Bible is for. It's to show us God. It's called revelation because it reveals God to us. And so he meditates on it day and night. Just like in Deuteronomy 6, you teach these things to your child. When you, when you rise up and when you lie down, when you sit and when you walk by the way, through the course of the day, you stir these things and you consider them. You chew on them in your mind and in your heart. And we can help one another to do that. We can encourage one another in knowing God and knowing his work in us. Instead of standing with those who are running from God, what if you go with those who are going after God, who are pursuing God, who are desiring God? And you encourage one another in that. And you might get together and say, hey, did you read this morning? Well, that might be helpful. But it might be a gotcha question. It might be one of those questions that encourages you to lie and say, well, yeah, I did. That's not really helpful. And so what if you did? What difference did it make? What if instead we encouraged one another? We provoked ourselves, but we encouraged one another. Didn't Peter tell us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? What if our question was more like, what are you hoping today? What are you hoping on today? What, did you, what have you read in God's word lately that's thrilling your heart? That's a question that actually encourages us. These are Pastor Bob's conversation starters, by the way. Okay, so you can feel free to jot these down. I gave you a whole blank page. No notes on it. You can fill that thing out yourself. Pastor Bob's conversation starters, all right? What, what, what have you read that's captured your heart today? What, what image of God have you seen in his word lately? What is God showing you about himself? Those kind of questions that yes or no's don't answer. Because we don't need yes or no answers to one another. We don't need to tick off boxes in the Christian life. We need to feed our own souls and to have that then over, over, overflow out of us to others. And we'll encourage one another. We'll provoke one another. That's what we want to do. You say, well, I don't have much hope today. Well, I know where you can find some. This is a book, brothers and sisters. This is a book about the true and living God. So this is a book that's full of hope. If our eyes will be directed at him instead of the ways all around us of the ungodly or of the sinners or of the actively rebellious scoffer. If we focus on them, we're going to be discouraged. If we instead delight in the true and the living God and how he has shown us himself in his word, that is going to feed our souls. It's going to feed our souls like a tree planted by streams of water. Green pastures. You know, when I was a young boy, we lived in Orville, Washington. You might not know where Orville, Washington is. It's the land of forest fires. But there's not a whole lot of forest. I don't really understand that. But Orville, Washington is the eastern Washington up north of Chelan right near the Canadian border. Understand, they're talk about building a border fence. Maybe it's going to keep those Canadians out. But Orville, Washington, just a little town, but we lived right along the Okanagan River. 
And my dad had this pump, and, he got, and, and we had these aluminum irrigation pipes. And our kids, the four of us, two in each field, one that side and one that side, and we would move these pipes and these sprinklers all around the field all the time. And I didn't know why. God, Dad just said, move the pipes, irrigate the fields. So we irrigated the fields, and uh, you know, the horses, the cows, they had grass to eat, and everything was good. Well, I went back on Google Earth, and I looked at that little house where I grew up those few years in Oroville, Washington. And man, it's a pitiful land. It, is, it looks like the middle of Montana. It's a dry and dusty land and there's nothing growing. And the only reason anything grew was because dad had the foresight to draw water out of the river and spread it around on the fields. And then they were green and then they grew and then they could feed the stupid cow. All right? You see how that works. And if there's no water coming out of the river into the field, nothing grows there except rattlesnakes. And who wants to eat rattlesnake? Somebody told me it tastes like chicken. I don't know. Never ate one. But I want to be like a tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Maybe not every day. Maybe not in every opportunity. But in season, it comes. And it's there because this is a tree that's rooted. It's sent out its tentacles, its roots to feed on and draw from the revelation of God himself. This is a branch that's attached to the vine. And Jesus says the life of the vine will flow through that branch and it will bear fruit and show itself to be his follower. The wicked are not like that. The ungodly, that's the same word again. Don't, don't treat it as just people who are outright evil. It's the people that don't know your Jesus. The ungodly, those without God, will not, are not like that. They're like chaff the wind drives away. Their life will not last. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But you will. You will stand in the day of justice. Why? Because Jesus stands for you. You, you will Stand and gather in the congregation of the righteous. We belong in God's gathering here and in eternity. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. You know that word, that knows? It's not just God's watching. You know, like Santa Claus in heaven. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. No, that's not it at all. God knows. In fact, your NIV Bible, if you're reading an NIV, it says guards. The Lord guards the way of the righteous. He looks after his own. Psalm 23. The sheep are still dumb, but they have got the best shepherd ever. And he is guarding their path. He's guarding their way. That's where I want to walk. That's where I want us to walk. I want us to be well fed. I want us to be so full of an awareness and a knowledge and a confidence and a hope of God that when people poke us, and they will, when people poke us, that's what leaks out of us. That's what comes forth. When you get squeezed, I want that to be the refreshment that comes out of us and draws others after the same loving God. Our Lord knows the way of the righteous. I want us to step back. I want us to step back and just, just look, just pause in the midst of life and say, where am I following merely conventional wisdom? Where am I going after in the ordering of my life, the priorities that I've chosen or what I'm pursuing, the goal I want to attain that's merely common sense? 
what everybody else is going after. What would God have me go after? What direction would he have me pursue? What is God's wisdom instead of this world's wisdom? Step back. What tempting associations? Where am I living too close? What distractions do I need to lay aside? Not because this thing is obviously evil, because it's a hindrance or a distraction or it gets in the way for me. Step back. Take a look. What are these things that slow me down? Hebrews tells us to lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us so that we can run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. What, step back, what rebellious rationalizations? What rebellious excuses do I give for going my way when I know it's not God's way? And instead, draw near. Draw near to God as he is. Draw near to God as he shows himself to us. As simple as delighting in the law of the Lord. God is my creator. God is my redeemer. God is the object of my devotion and worship because he is the one that has made sacrifice for my sin. God can be trusted in the midst of this wilderness because my God has made a covenant relationship with me and called me after himself and set before me a rich and good inheritance. That's where my delight will be. I will delight in God's word to me. We will delight in God's word that God has shown himself to us. Your stream of life-giving water is God's word. God's truth about himself, his love, his purpose for you. See, God's truth is where you find your identity, your purpose, your future, what matters God's truth is the food for your soul. It's the source of vibrant spiritual life that something in you thirsts for. You want to be fruitful. You want life to matter. That's, it's not complicated, but it does take some discipline. It takes delighting in the right direction. Start a new habit. Drink deeply. Put down some roots this week into God's word and see what God will do with it in you and through you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you to do your work. We do ask you to grow us in ways that we don't even know what to ask for. But Father, there's something that hungers in us. There's something that wants to know more of you. We want to be more like that tree that's planted by streams of living water. We want to be more like a tree that is fruitful, and that in the shade of its branches, others can find rest and shelter. I want my life to be that for someone. Yet I feel like I don't have anything to give at times. I don't feel like I don't have any shade, shelter to offer. Lord, maybe I need to fill up my shade and shelter from you to remind my heart. Perhaps it's a bit dry to remind my heart of who you are for me, of who you'd be for others. Lord, we want to be used by you. Our, as a church body, we want to be used by you in this community. In all the places where you'll scatter us and direct us in this week. Oh, Father, fill us and send us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father.